One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Eleanor Henderson, author of the novels 10,000 Saints and the 12 Mile Straight, and co-editor of Labor Day, True Birth Stories by Today's Best Women Writers. Henderson currently lives in Ithaca, New York, but grew up in Florida hearing tales of life in Georgia from her father, who was born there in Hill County in 1932. He was one of seven children born to sharecroppers and business owners and shared many of his childhood experiences with his daughter as she grew up. While Eleanor Henderson has spent her adult life on the East Coast, she says when it was time to write her second novel, she knew it would be based in rural Georgia. Twelve Mile Straight, which is the name of the road where the story is set, tells the tale of a white sharecropper and his daughter Elma, their black domestic helper Nan, and the twins that Elma birthed, one white and one black. We began the interview talking about her choice of time and setting. I kind of always thought that I had a Georgia book in me and that I might want to revisit um, the my family's past or you know the the age in which um, my father came of age in particular. But I, I didn't really know what the story would be. I just thought, well, I want to I want to explore this place. And it wasn't until I was well past my my first um, novel or at least uh, completed it at the first draft that I was watching a documentary one day about fetal development. I was pregnant with my first son about 10 years ago. And I discovered this phenomenon of, of double paternity. It's called heteropaternal superfecundization, where two twins can have two different fathers. And I was really astounded by that because I didn't know that that could happen. I'd watched a lot of days of our lives, but I didn't know that it was something that could happen in real life. And I was really astounded by the possibilities uh, 
fictional possibilities. What would it be like to live with somebody, grow up with somebody, share a womb with somebody who was supposed to be more like you than anybody, but was maybe quite different from you or look quite different from you. And when I started eventually to try on that story within the Georgia setting, I became more comfortable when I, when I sort of had found the seed of a story, when I discovered that, you know, these two kids who were born, one of these babies is black and one of them is white, um, who are born to uh, this white daughter, share, white daughter of a sharecropper, um, that, you know, they would have a lot of sort of rich potential for storytelling because their experiences might be very different and um, the circumstances of their birth would not be just, you know, not tolerated but p- punished. And so then I began to have a little more confidence in, in writing this book about Georgia. You said something that was interesting to me, and you were saying that when you thought about writing this, it was kind of out of your comfort zone. And I wonder what that means mm-hmm. as a writer, because I think we are expected, you know, there is the old adage, write what you know. But I think in a lot of ways, right. it's also really interesting to explore something new and learn as you're writing. And I think, you know, w- as human beings, we always want to push ourselves. So I'm just wondering what that meant to you. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know that I have a really well-defined comfort zone. You know, I think um, that there are some writers who sort of know their material really intuitively. Um, sometimes that material is really autobiographically influenced. Um, but for me, I've, I've always been attracted to stories of others. Um, so even though my, my two books are really different, the f- my first book is really inspired by the world that my husband grew up in, the straight edge hardcore scene in New York City in the 1980s. And I was so charmed by and interested in the stories that he told me that I was really drawn to kind of capturing that world, even if it wasn't based directly on his own life. And really the same process, I think, was taking place in the second book where I had been hearing these secondhand stories from my father and really wanted to recreate that world and kind of visit it, you know, just sort of build a time machine, of, uh, you know, which is what a novel can be and, and kind of climb in and, and go back and visit his world. And so, um, so both of those, those processes felt comfortable to me, even if the world felt more daunting. And I mean, in particular, I think what was outside of my comfort zone was, you know, writing about the sort of charged race relations um, of, of that time, which are still, of course, very much with us. So that those, um, the sort of task felt more daunting to me and felt less comfortable to me. Although, you know, I would say that feeling uncomfortable is a, is a, is a good and productive thing for a writer to feel. Um, but I, but I, it's an interesting question about one's comfort zone. I, you know, I don't think we ever should be working too closely within our own comfort zone, right? I mean, I think that as a writer, we can fall back on our strengths um, as much as we need and want to. I was thinking about that piece of advice from Zadie Smith quite a bit when I was writing this. You know, it's okay to fall back on my strengths and do what I know how to do. But, you know, I think with each book, we also want to sort of be kind of pushing, um, pushing our own bubble, so to speak, uh, out a little bit further at every edge. And for me, that was, you know, mostly a question of, you know, will my audience trust me with this material? You know, because, you know, people think of me as someone who has like some sort of expertise over rock and roll or something because of my first book, which is about music. And I, I was concerned about readers sort of scratching their heads with this book. 
Um, but also I, you know, I, I want to read as widely as I can. And I really admire other writers who are writing really widely and, and kind of redefining their own comfort zone with every book, like Colson Whitehead and Jennifer Egan. I never know what, what is going to um, show up in, in one of their new books. So, so those writers were inspiring to me and getting out of my own comfort zone. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel The Twelve Mile Straight. So at the heart of this book, you have this woman who's the daughter of a sharecropper, Elma, and she gives birth to these twins. And you write in the very beginning, you know, that if you looked closely and people did, um, you could see that the girl was pink as a piglet and the boy was brown. So you have these two babies. Um, their names are, are Winifred and Wilson. So you have Winna and Wilson. And then um, Elma has, um, she's like a sister to her. Her name is Nan and she's black. And they basically grew up together. So at the center, I would say you have these four individuals, Nan and Elma and the twins, and then, you know, their fathers and lovers and all these other people. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, starting with this idea from this documentary of twins and how you built it into this story about, you know, the questions of paternity and race and Mm -hmm. being an oddball and that sort of thing? Yeah, when I first started writing the book, I thought that the twins would be sort of the heart of the story, and I, I wasn't really sure when the book would take place, and I was sort of, you know, writing around in the dark for a while, and I, I wrote a, a draft or so, maybe 100 pages of a draft before I shared with a friend, and uh, and that friend sort of asked all the questions that I didn't realize that I wanted to answer, which really shifted the focus from the twins themselves and their life growing up on the farm. They would have been, you know, part of my dad's generation to the questions of how the twins came to be in the first place, who their parents were, um, what circumstances arose, what sort of, you know, abuses of power, what forces were at play so that these twins, you know, were, were birthed in the first place. And so I ended up shifting the focus back and, and really the camera doesn't go much further than 1930, 1931, um, when those twins are born. Um, and often we'll just, we'll revert to the past. And so I found myself um, shifting points of view. You know, I had actually initially uh, written uh, this draft or attempted to write it in different point of view, a kind of peripheral first person and um, and realized that I couldn't do that for a number of reasons. And remembering Zadie Smith's advice sort of fell back on what I felt like I, I did know how to do or, you know, sort of attempted or, or taught myself how to do in my first book, which was those multiple points of view, the roving omniscient narrator. So the book follows um, really all of the characters that, that you mentioned um, pretty closely through each of their own points of view. And, um, and, in doing that sort of unfolds the, 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 the secrets um, and kind of tries to um, unpack them kind of generation by generation going back. So, so the, the timeline sort of moves um, forward and backward um, somewhat haphazardly. And, um, and I, and I found that I was discovering the story in doing that, you know, that I, I didn't know the answers to all of the questions and, and that kind of you know, unpacking the history helped me to understand the characters' motivations even when they were um, not pretty. 
The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You begin with a lynching of a character that is close to Elma and Nan in several different ways and their family. And you also have many, many scenes of, of rape and women being taken advantage of. And... I'm just wondering how you approached this delicate sort of violence that is true and happens and and trying to approach it in a way that seems honest, but also not cliche. Yeah, I worried about that a lot. And, you know, to be honest, I'm not sure that I um, was able entirely to avoid those pitfalls of writing about um, those really dramatic acts, those violent acts. And um, and I'm not, I'm not quite sure, um, you know, how to achieve that delicate balance of both, you know, presenting the harsh reality of the you know, horrific crimes that took place, but also not kind of, you know, recommitting that violence upon the reader, upon the characters for the reader to witness, you know, there's a kind of violence in that writing. Um, and, I struggled with it. You know, I wanted to present the lynching um, in a way that um, sort of, you know, dignified the the horror of the act, um, but also didn't, you know, remove the humanity from Genus Jackson, the character he's killed. And and in the scenes where um, where you know there is either an explicit rape scene or there's a sort of suggestion of one. Maybe perhaps there in particular, you know, I, I think there's not much to be gained by a reader in um, sort of participating in those details. Um, and on the other hand, that's our job as a fiction writer, right, is to involve the reader, implicate the reader, both in the, the, the life and mind of the victim, and in some cases in this book, the life and mind of the, of the villains. And so I, I struggled with that, too. What are my motivations in humanizing you know, a rapist and a murderer. Yeah, I thought a lot about um, Wayne C. Booth's question when he talks about morality and, and fiction and, you know, his his work about uh, narratology, you know, like, what what is my purpose here? How am I excusing or forgiving, you know, a character's act of violence on another by simply recreating it? And I think there is a kind of moral obligation on the part of the author to really consider that experience of the reader and, you know, my changing, my, my thoughts changed on this as I, as I was working on it, as I, you know, I, I probably wrote that first chapter more carelessly than I would have six years ago than I would today. And, and um, I've, I've pretty much decided not to read that first chapter out loud, actually, at readings, because it's, um, 
it's so striking. I did it once when I was working on the novel and, uh, and realized that even sort of sharing, sharing that um, opening scene in, in a space was really uncomfortable for me. And again, I think it's important for readers and writers to make themselves uncomfortable sometimes, but, um, but it, that didn't seem very productive. So um, I tried to think about my audience, you know, I tried to think rhetorically about what I was trying to achieve on the page. And, and that means thinking about the different experiences that, that uh, readers might bring um, to the page. And you can never predict that entirely, right? I mean, there's, there's some mystery and, um, and it's difficult, right? Because I think it's so important that we, that we are, don't ignore this incredibly dark history which is still, of course, echoing today. But at the same time, um, you know, I think you have to present um, those details with a kind of care that that um, sometimes means turning the camera away. I mean, I, I learned a lot from other writers. And as I was writing this book about um, the choice to turn the camera away, um, Wayne C. Booth calls this authorial silence, you know, where you just make a kind of moral choice to withhold. Um, as I was working um, on this book, I read and uh, uh, Brett Anthony Johnson's novel, uh, remember me like this, um, where he chooses to um, withhold all of the details and the whole perspective of the character who is victimized in this book. Um, and the only perspective that we get are the perspectives of the family members of this person um, who don't know what that violence entailed. And I thought that it was a really um, remarkable sort of, you know, moral and creative technique um, to, you know, not re-victimize this character, um, to satisfy the curiosity of the reader, um, but to leave that space and to leave, um, to leave that open. So, you know, I felt that I did need to um, present some of these scenes in all of their detail, but then sometimes I would sort of turn the camera off or turn it away when I felt that sort of enough was enough. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel The Twelve Mile Straight. I'm wondering if when you started the book, you had any questions that either you answered or if you changed how you felt about things in the course of this or if you sort of discovered something about your topic that really struck you and that lives with you now my opinion about the sort of material didn't really change I mean I you know went in knowing that it was going to be sort of you know difficult and dark and it was um and so there were no sort of great surprises there but yeah I do I do feel that I came out the other side of this novel a different writer um thinking about my obligations as a novelist differently and um part of that was understanding more and more as I was writing how how relevant the material was. You know, I, I went in worried that it wasn't going to be relevant, you know, that nobody needed another novel about the Jim Crow South. And with every year, um, it, it seemed to me more more important that we do revisit um, those old wounds, which, are, which aren't so old, which are still very much open. And so, the, you know, I, I began in a, a place of relative ignorance, I think. And... Um, you know, and, and, you know, I published this novel shortly after Charlottesville, you know, at a time when we were using the word lynch um, pretty literally. And so, you know, that, that history isn't very far behind us. And as I was writing it, 
it seemed to me fresher and fresher, you know, that, that, those old wounds. And, um, and also, you know, my thinking about, um, my obligations, my responsibilities, um, as a white writer, uh, from the North, um, I, you know, live in Ithaca now and would consider myself, you know, pretty well established here. Um, somebody writing about, um, characters who lived in the South 80 years ago, many of whom were black. You know, I, I entered that project, what I thought was with a lot of deliberation and care, but, you know, I, I hope that I adopted more deliberation and care as I was writing and it really struggled with um, issues of appropriation um, as I was writing the book in ways that I um, hadn't been as concerned um, with at the very beginning. Um, and that just, you know, came through in the sort of, you know, six years that our, our country has, has gone through since then, but also um, in my getting to know those characters and their struggles. And I really wrestled with, you know, how to present a character's experience on the page um, and how to, you know, how, whether, whether and how to inhabit a character of color, you know, something that I think about to a great degree now, you know, almost more than anything else in this book. Uh, it was one of my greatest worries, um, you know, so much so that I'm teaching this class next semester called writing the other quote unquote, you know, how do we, how do we ever write beyond our own experience? You know, it's just the duty of the fiction writer to imagine our way into other people's lives. But, um, but sometimes there are boundaries to that, uh, that kind of imagination. And I'm very interested in sort of denoting, uh, or at least I'm wandering through with other students and writers, you know, where those boundaries are. In, in the book, you know, we've mentioned Elma and Nan, but I felt like the, that, there was one character that sort of dominated, maybe not on the page, but his presence in everyone's life, and that was Juke Jessup. That was Elma's father. He was the he was the sharecropper. His wife had died, so he had um, Ketty Nan's mom to help take care of Elma, and then Nan was part of their family, basically. And and he, I felt like he was the impetus for many things that happened. He was very controversial. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about his character and creating him and his presence in the book. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, he's he does awful things in this book. Um, you know, some of which we've sort of talked around and, and um, he certainly yeah, does have this kind of domineering presence. He calls most of the shots in this house. And part of that reason is because he is a, a white man in this house of two other women. And, and part of that reason is because he's part of the sharecropping system. You know, he is pretty poor, but he's not as poor as some of the other sharecroppers on the 12 mile straight who have to share with many other families. He has been kind of designated the single sharecropping family on this one farm owned by George Wilson. And so he has a kind of taste for the finer things in life that, that George Wilson presents to him. Um, his, his friend growing up, String Wilson, um, was killed during the war. Um, and so he has a special bond with, with his father, the landlord, George Wilson, and, and kind of exploits that through this um, partnership that they have, this bootlegging um, business. And so he uses every opportunity that he can to sort of um, exert what influence he can. And, and um, 
and you know, of course, in doing so, steps on everybody who's below him to get as to get as high as he can, which isn't very high. Um, so, so even beyond the household, he's um, he's uh, you know exploiting his power whenever possible. But it it did seem to me that with Juke, I really wanted to explore his motivations. And again, I think that's a kind of moral choice on the part of the narrator and part of the writer. Um, there were some characters who I felt less um, motivated to do that for, like uh, Freddie Wilson, who's the landlord's grandson, and Elma's fiance, who has fled town after participating in, in killing Genus early in the book. And he seemed to me to be a character who, you know, and on the one hand, I kind of worried that he was too cartoonish. You know, he's um, he's pretty vile. Um, he's, you know, uh, he does terrible things in the book w- without much sort of explanation except for his kind of his privilege. He's born into um, that power and he never questions it. Um, and so uh, I was less interested in what somebody um, like him, like Freddie could bring to the table and more interested in exploring the contours of you know, Juke's own conscience and consciousness. You know, what um, what brought him to uh, to harm the other people in his life the way that he did? Well, you know, often people uh, who hurt people have been hurt themselves. And so you know, looking at those particular wounds that he endured as a kid at the hands of his father, for example, on the farm, you know, without kind of <laughs> trying to retell that ancient story, you know, about the the son who's been abused who then goes on to abuse, you know, trying, I hope, to keep that that fresh. Um, and so you'll see in the book a lot of children, almost all the characters you'll see as children at some point. And I, I didn't really realize that until it was done. Part of that um, motivation, I think, was seeing my dad when we when we went to the farm. I took a number of research trips down to Georgia when I was writing the book. And the first time I took my dad, we went on a road trip down there. And he's 85. He was about 80 at the at the time. And um, he's a photographer, so he was carrying his camera around his neck. This was back on the family farm that we'd visited. We hadn't been back to in 20 years, and we saw the rubble of his old house. And he was trying to remember where everything is, you know, where's the cotton house and where's the, you know, where was the barn? And and he had to physically get down on both of his knees, which wasn't very easy for him, in order to see from the point of view of a five or six-year-old boy, which was when he lived on the farm. And so that really stayed with me when I saw him do that. You know, I think in a way it's a kind of fiction writer's duty, too, to get down on our knees to the level of our characters and see the world through their eyes. And Juke was a five or six year old boy on that farm too, you know, who, who had a fantasy life too, you know, who, um, who dreamed of getting off the farm. And, and I think, you know, trying to see the world through those eyes, those innocent eyes before they were corrupted as much as possible um, was important. But I struggled with that too, you know, because I was thinking about this one after Charlottesville, when people were arguing about, you know, whether it was our job to understand the motivations of neo-Nazis, you know, how did they get this way? Um, you know, do we need to understand them? Do we need to empathize with them or do we just need to condemn them? Um, yeah, I think we can do both. And I think in fiction, we can do both too. So that's what I tried to do. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel The Twelve Mile Straight. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? A book that I was thinking about a lot when I wrote this book um, was The Known World by Edward P. Jones, which uh, I love so much. Um, and, you know, the the resemblances in terms of the, you know, the setting and the themes are probably pretty clear. But I actually chose the opening of a short story by Edward P. Jones because I think he packs so much into a story, um, whole a whole novel into a single story. So I'm just going to read from the opening um, of the story called In the Blink of God's Eye, which is the first story in his collection, All Aunt Hagar's Children. The 1901 winter, when the wife and her husband were still new to Washington, there came to the wife, like a scent carried on the wind, some word that wolves roamed the streets and roads of the city after sundown. The wife, Ruth Patterson, knew what wolves could do. She had an uncle who went to Alaska in 1895 to hunt for gold, an uncle who was devoured by wolves not long after he slept under his first Alaskan moon. Still, the night, even in God-forsaken Washington, sometimes had that old song that could pull Ruth up and out of her bed, the way it did when she was a girl across the Potomac River in Virginia, where all was safe and all was family. Her husband, Aubrey, always slept the sleep of a man not long out of boyhood and never woke. Hearing the song call her from her new bed in Washington, Ruth, ever mindful of the wolves, would take up their knife and pistol and kiss Aubrey's still hairless face and descend to the porch. She was well past 17, and he is edging toward 18, a couple not even seven whole months married. The house and its twin next door was always quiet, for those city houses were populated mostly by country people used to going to bed with the chickens. On the porch, only a few paces from the corner of 3rd and L Streets at Northwest, she would stare at the gaslight on the corner and smell the smoke from the hearth of someone's dying fire, listening to the song and remembering the world around Arlington, Virginia. There's so much in there. You know, it's um, so incredibly rich from sentence to sentence. He does this in his novel also, but I just love the way that in a single sentence, he can transport us back in time um, and then return to the current scene without, you know, the reader really noticing. You know, there's this truly omniscient narrator who, who is a, presenting this world to us and, and in the known world we'll sometimes even go forward, you know, into these these flash forwards where, you know, a character might be born and and die and and, and live his life all in a couple of sentences. And so that that kind of um you know, uh, kind of mythic quality to the narration is, is so appealing to me and, and I, it was very much in my mind when I wrote my book. Can you read something you wrote that maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something that you like how it turned out? I think this is all of those things for the most part. (laughs) So this is from the third chapter of the book. And um, those chapters are just sort of dealing with the uh, aftermath of the birth of the twins and the lynching of Genus as this family is... um, moving on with carrying, you know, taking care of the babies. And um, there's a passage at the end of the chapter um, where I'm describing the town's response to the twins. It wasn't a miracle, some thought, just a disgrace. 
And then um, I have a, a long paragraph that starts, but mostly people believed. Folks in Cotton County were believers. There's a long um, list of things that people in Cotton County believe in. And I was pretty fond of that paragraph and, uh, and thought that it was sort of done. Um, and then I, you know, over the years read through it and realized it was, it was pretty um, starkly incomplete. So I'll start with the, what was the last paragraph of that chapter, and then I'll continue with, um, with what I added. So they believed that the babies were twins because if they didn't believe, then they didn't believe Genus Jackson was one of the daddies. They'd have to believe that the daddy was someone else. They'd have to believe that a mob of white men killed a black man for no reason, and they couldn't believe that. Except the black folks. They knew what their white neighbors were capable of. They believed in the same things the white folks believed in, except they didn't believe in the white folks. Some of them didn't believe in Georgia. Some of them believed the only promised land lay north except they didn't believe in outsiders either. Neither the white folks nor the black folks believed in outsiders. None of the folks, black or white, knew Genus Jackson. If they had, maybe one of them would have been seen crying on a porch or writing a letter to Walter White or taking up a collection for a funeral. So even Ezra and Long John and Al believed the story that was told. They sat on their stools at Young's and talked it over. Ezra said, boy, they ain't done come to the wrong town. Long John said, never did like that hunchback boy. Al, who was the oldest, who had sons of his own, said, he's all right. He's just a poor child of the Lord. Poor child done fell for the wrong white girl. He'd been lucky while he was alive, Ezra said. He'd been treated too good, put up in that shack without paying a penny. Besides, the boss gave them a pint of liquor every harvest, and his daughter, at Christmas, she made them pies. So that's the end of the third chapter now. And, um, you know, I had ended it with this, you know, sort of um, rebuke of the, the white townspeople who, you know, were so hypocritical in their, um, their judgment of this family. And, you know, it didn't occur to me how white-centric that whole description of the town was um, until I thought about, you know, the neighborhood of Rocky Bottom, where most of the, the Black folks in the novel would live in the, in the fourth quarter. And, um, and but then sort of, in, you know, being as inclusive as possible and really presenting this town and all of its nuance meant then, you know, generalizing that population in the same way that I just generalized the white town, townspeople. And so that felt like an additional risk, but also one that I had to take if I wanted to be as inclusive. And so I'm not sure that um, I still feel a little bit nervous reading that section um, because I had to make, you know, assumptions about um, the black neighborhood, just as I had about the white neighborhood. Um, I hope was maybe a little bit more, um, you know, sort of, you know, uh, understanding than, um, than, than the previous paragraph. Um, and but then that meant complicating each of those generalizations further to, you know, that they had actually in common that they didn't believe in outsiders. And, um, and so, yeah, that feels a little bit risky. I think whenever we are writing about groups of characters, we're making assumptions about them that can be transferred to real people and real groups, but it felt necessary um, to, to maybe, you know, make a mistake or, or overgeneralize that felt more important to me than, than sort of being incomplete.
Um, so that was how that, um, that chapter evolved or grew as I was writing it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel The Twelve Mile Straight. Where do you write? I usually write in coffee shops. I have a desk here at home that is covered in laundry and bills and a number of other things that have fallen down from my bulletin board. Um, and I have a desk at work um, at Ithaca College where I teach, but I like to keep that um, separate. So I like to write in coffee shops. Um, sometimes I'll come downstairs and work at the dining room table while my family's asleep. But um, when I have a few hours to work, I like to go down, walk downtown to the shop cafe in Ithaca and set up with my laptop. And I, I like the... Um, the flurry of activity around. I sometimes will um, put on my headphones and put on an app called Coffitivity, which is actually the sounds of coffee shop. <laughs> but somehow hearing that sort of white noise blocks out the actual less than white noise of the coffee shop. And I can actually get a good deal done um, without the distractions of the laundry in my desk at home. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't know that I've found that place yet where I can entirely get away from writing. I mean, when I can really truly turn off my phone and my computer, it's lovely to have children and a family to to really um, be able to appreciate and be present with and to take me far, far away from the worlds that I'm visiting, especially when they're this dark. But I also um, am building a new house right now. And so my mind is very much... Um, there and I haven't been happier in a long time than just building this new house in my mind. And um, I'm not literally um, building the house, but I'm, um, you know, creating creating that space. And my father is an architect, uh, and uh, we talk a lot about the resemblances between writing and architecture. You know, sort of building these these spaces to live in. And so I'm not working on a new book yet, but I am building a house, and so that's making making me really happy. <laughs> And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have a number of readers I'm lucky to have um, who I think are generally willing to read my work. But probably my first two readers are my friends who are also novelists, Mary Beth Keene and Anna Solomon, who are both incredibly talented writers, but also incredibly in-tuned um, and honest and smart readers. And so I'll often share with them you know, after a hundred pages or two, when I feel like it's time to uh, share with the world and and decide, is this a thing? Is this a novel? Does it look like a novel? Does it smell like a novel? Okay, then I'm going to keep working on it. And then, you know, at, at whatever point before it needs to go out into the world again. And, um, and that's incredibly helpful. It was one of the most useful um, ways that uh, that my MFA served me and um, and then the Breadloaf Writers Conference where I met Anna. And, um, you know, I think wherever you can find readers, of, you know, whether it's at a writers conference or a, a grad program or just in your backyard, it's so helpful to have and I'm really grateful for it. And how have you dealt with rejection? I'm not very good at dealing with rejection. But I think um, it's gotten easier for me you know, the more sort of doors that have opened, um, I can remind myself and just sort of rationalize with myself, okay, well, someone liked something else that I wrote before. 
um, someone has published another book or another article or whatever it is. And, um, and remembering that not every book is for everybody is also really helpful. You know, I don't, I don't want to write anything that, that everybody will like on a sort of rational level. But on the other hand, I want people to like me. <laughs> the people pleasing part of, I think any writer's brain can sometimes get in the way of, of understanding that readers are going to bring their unique, unique reading to every project. But just sort of having a, a conversation with myself, that sort of gentle conversation where I'm parenting myself and giving myself the kind of advice that I would give to my own kid. Um, it's not always easy, but it's what I try to do. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> I've been thinking about this as I've been talking to you. I'm sitting in my six-year-old's bedroom where he has just written um, what I want for Christmas is a video game, but it's all one word and none of the words are spelled correctly on his chalkboard. But it reminds me of another word that he made up. You know, often he, when he was four or five, he would just write a bunch of letters and, um, and the word that he created that still stays with us today is lumsbrop. <laughs> so we will often call each other lumsbrop. It's really handy for just about anything. And he was so delighted. You know, he would write down the letters and then say, what did I just write? And I would read it for him. And he would just howl with laughter that he had created a word. And so I think it's too, too hard for me to choose an actual word. It's like choosing one of my favorite children. But... I do love that word because it reminds me just sort of the magic of the language. Seeing a kid learn to read and write is, is a pretty magical way for a writer to reconnect with, with the English language. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Eleanor Henderson, author of the novel The Twelve Mile Straight. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.